Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapters 5 and 6 tonight. This is a, a distinct sermon that Jeremiah preached, and so we're going to look at the sermon as a whole. We won't read all the verses that are there. Well, let me ask you a question as we get started. Um, stop signs apply to? Well, I hope so. Uh, a few months back, might have been last year actually, I was driving to church and I uh, was driving to church coming through the Cub Creek Park area and I drove up to the stop sign that's right there in front of the Wilkes Heritage Museum. You know, Waggles is there on the right and then on the left is the candy store, which is my son Nathan's favorite place probably in all of the world. And uh, the museum was right there, and I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I drove up, and I stopped. And the car on the left went because it had stopped before I did, and I had my turn signal on, and I was there getting ready to turn left so I could come on to church, and this car that was supposed to stop at the stop sign there on my right, they didn't even think about stopping. There wasn't even a dream. There wasn't even a pause. They just ran on through. And I was about halfway in, and I hit my brakes, and I I stopped. And and thankfully, I stopped fast enough for the person in that car not to be hit. And I have no idea if they even paid attention, knew that they didn't stop, had no clue whatsoever. So stop signs are for the people that are driving up to the place where there's a stop sign, right? Here's why I bring that up. Because as we read through the book of Jeremiah, and as we work through these sermons, it is going to be so easy for us as followers of Jesus to read these texts and to read these verses and think, oh my goodness, that is for somebody else. That verse, that situation, that circumstance, man, that's for our nation. Uh, Bless God, Portland needs to read this. Washington, D.C. needs to look at this passage of Scripture. Our congressmen and senators and and those that are in government, they've got to pay attention to what Jeremiah is telling us. And and we've got to be careful because this message was not first given to a national leader. It wasn't first given to a nation. It was first given to God's people. So here's what I would caution us to do. I would remind us that we're at the stop sign. This message is first and foremost for those of us that are here. Yes, maybe others need to hear it. Yes, maybe we need to take what we hear and apply it outside of the context in which we live. This is first and foremost a message to us. The sermon title today is A Tale of Two Paths. It really flows out of Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. If you'll turn over and read this wonderful verse, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. What a beautiful verse, a beautiful invitation. Look back at the places you should be walking. But notice what it said at the conclusion, but they said we will not walk in it. That's the testimony of the people of Judah. They had an opportunity to offer in front of them to walk in the paths that would bring peace and rest They decided we're going to walk in a different path. We're going to walk in a way of wickedness. Really, we see what that way of wickedness is all throughout chapter 5. Read with me, if you will, verses 1 through 3. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. This is chapter 5, verse 1. Look and take note. 
This is God's offer to Jeremiah, by the way. Search her squares to see if you can find a man who does justice and seeks truth at my heart, or that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely, Lord, do you not, do your eyes not look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to repent. Verse 4, then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they don't know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great, and I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke and had burst the bonds. Tale of two paths. When we walk in wicked paths, we can expect judgment. We walk in wicked paths, we can expect judgment. All of chapter 5 is Jeremiah's uh, applying of what God had invited him to do. In fact, this invitation should recall to our minds an event from earlier in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when Abraham was talking with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was praying to God, God, if there's, you know, 50 righteous people in, in Sodom, would you, would you rescue them? If there are 45, if there are 40, if there are 30, if there are 20, if there are 10. And Abraham kept praying, and God said, if there are 10, then I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, we know the way the story ended. There weren't 10. There, weren't even, there wasn't even one righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And a very similar invitation is issued not by Jeremiah this time, but by the Lord to say to Jeremiah, go throughout Judah and see if you can find anybody who searches out truth, anybody who does justice. So Jeremiah went to the poor, and Jeremiah went to the wealthy, Jeremiah went to the haves, and Jeremiah went to the have-nots. Jeremiah went to those who were oppressed, and he went to those who were oppressors. And in all of those situations, Jeremiah did not find a righteous person. And so judgment came. Judgment was coming, and when we walk in wicked paths, we can expect judgment. What does it look like to walk in wicked paths? It looks like this. We walk in wicked paths when we reject truth. In fact, there are four ways... Now, we can discern from chapter 5 that we walk in wicked ways. We walk in wicked paths when we reject truth. We walk in wicked paths when we abandon justice. We walk in wicked paths when we seek after immorality or when we choose immorality, embrace it. We walk in wicked paths when we uh, uh, pursue idolatry. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to spend our time on the first two of those. We just don't have time to unpack all four of them. But we're going to look at this first one. We walk in wicked paths when we reject truth. I want you to catch with me several verses here that highlight this very theme. In, in verse 1, God gives Jeremiah the invitation to go out and find somebody who seeks truth. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5, uh, Jeremiah writes this, they have spoken falsely of the Lord. So there's someone not speaking the truth, falsely of the Lord, and have said he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them, thus it shall be done to them. One commentator puts it this way, these prophets were windbags full of hot air. They didn't have anything to say because they weren't speaking truth. In other words, the prophets, the leaders of the people of God were not speaking truth. The people weren't seeking after truth. They were desiring something that was false. Look with me in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 5. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and they have gone away. 
In other words, they have an opportunity to respond, but they have rejected the offer that is in front of them. They have distorted truth. Notice verse 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? That is one of the most... Um, disturbing verses I think I've I found in all of Scripture. The prophets were prophesying falsely. They're not telling the truth. The preachers, the people that the people of God were supposed to trust were out spreading lies, things that God had not said. They were saying God had said. They were getting people to buy into their lies. The priests were kind of guiding this process. They were directing it. And you know what the text says? The text says that my people love to have it so. The people love this. They want to hear things that are false. They want to buy into things that are untrue. They want to uh, embrace things that are not right. It's a terrible verse, a, 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 a deafeningly painful verse. Look over in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Uh, they have healed the wound of my people, talking about the prophets again and the priests. They've healed the wound of my people, lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed an abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall fall among those who fall. And at the time, I will punish them, and they shall be overthrown. In other words, what were they saying? They were saying that God's going to give us peace. He's going to give us protection. He's going to be our defense. He's going to be our God. He's going to be our stronghold. Just like He defended Israel in years past, He's going to defend us now. He's not going to let us be destroyed. They were saying peace when God had not said peace. They were preaching lies. They were holding on to things that were untrue. Let me tell you where a people begins to fail. Every single example in human history of a people that has begun to fall and turn away from God begins at this issue of rejecting truth. That is the starting point of a failure of a people. It's the starting point of a failure of a church. It's the starting point of a failure of a nation. It is when we start saying, this truth is really not truth, this is really false, and so we're going to embrace this other opinion and this other idea. And when we do this, it leads to a place of detriment and judgment and pain and suffering. In fact, this is the question of our age. It's not just the question of our age, it's the question that's been asked for 2,000 years. Do you remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate, Governor Pilate, the man who held his life, well not really held his life in, in his hands, but that was the understanding that Pilate had of the situation. Jesus had a far different understanding of the situation because he could have stopped the events of history right there in that moment. But Jesus knew that we needed a Savior and a forgiver and a Redeemer, and he went through the, with that terrible judgment and Jesus, his death on the cross and that false trial. But anyway, in that conversation, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? What is truth? It's a question that people all across our ages have asked. What is truth? And there's been an intentional attack on the truth in contemporary culture. And and it's spread into the church. In the Enlightenment era, there was a movement to essentially say the only things that we can guarantee are absolutely true are things we can verify through the fields of mathematics or through the fields of science. In other words, if we we can test it, if we can prove it, if we can show it, then that's true. All these other things, nah, I'm not sure. In other words, it was a way for those who were elite, 
or for those who were academically blessed or academically inclined, they could walk through the pay and say, we're going to reject the Bible as truth. We're not, we're not going to uh, embrace that. Thomas Jefferson's a great example of that. His Bible was about this thick because he took out of it everything that he didn't agree with. And so he had a version of truth, but it wasn't absolute truth. We see this in contemporary culture today. Not only now are, are we is truth attacked on the front of those things that are rational and those things that are scientific are true, but there's an attack on absolute truth. According to a Barna research study recently, 44% of Americans claim that truth is relative, meaning that it only is something that changes with the course and the winds of human experience, compared to 35% who believe that truth is absolute or contains absolutes. How about this one? Millennials, 64% of millennials, 64% of millennials don't feel that any one religious text has a monopoly on truth, but they're all different expressions of the same message. 64% would say that the text of the Quran and the text of the Bible and the Hindu text scriptures basically are the same message going the same direction. Truth is relative. When we live in an age and an era where truth is relative, then we live in an age and an era where God's statements and God's words don't matter any longer. You say, well, well, well Pastor, I, I, I think the truth is absolute. I agree that the Bible is God's inspired and errant word of God, and I'm going to abide by it. Well, what do we do with the passages of Scripture we don't like? And you and I may not look at the passages of Scripture we don't like and say they need to be taken out of the Bible. But I certainly know many of us look at the passages of Scripture we don't like and we kind of skip over them really fast and in a hurry. And maybe we don't apply them to our lives and maybe we don't think how we're, we're supposed to live according to them. Maybe we don't actually think the truth is relative, but maybe practically speaking we live as if it is. Because when we read things that God says directly and absolutely, do we take it as God's statements that this is the way we're to behave and this is the way we're to live and this is the way we're to think and this is what we're to do? Uh, by the way, we can't live as if there are no absolutes. It, to use the claim that truth is not absolute is, a truth, is an absolute truth claim. It's, it's, it's uh, self-defeating. By the way, none of us want to live as if truth is relative when it comes to a cancer diagnosis. We want to know that for sure. We, we want to know that that test has been done and it's certain. None of us want truth to be relative in the field uh, when it regards our bank accounts. You know, I'll just put the decimal point where I want it to go rather than where it should go. Uh, none of us operate that way. Well, maybe our government with regard to our debt, but that's a whole other sermon for a whole other conversation, right? But my point is this, we don't operate this way in the normal spheres of life. Why do we operate this way with the Scripture? Because we don't want to listen to God. I think the claim that, I, that Jeremiah gives in verse 31 is my people love to have it so fits our culture and our generation, and unfortunately it fits too many of our churches. We just want to do things our own way, so we push back against truth. Let me tell you something, folks. When we reject truth, we're walking in a wicked path that is destined for judgment and destruction. 
to give you a second application here. We walk in wicked paths when we abandon justice. Um, I don't often get nervous anymore before I preach. It's not because I, I don't think what I'm saying is important. It's just kind of used to the experience of preaching. But before I preach this passage, I talked with my accountability partner, and I talked with my staff, and I talked with my wife, and I don't normally do that either, because this is a relatively contentious section of Scripture. Because the Bible says that you and I as followers of Jesus have an obligation to live according to justice. And I'm just going to be honest with you, if you pay any attention to the news cycles these days, there are a lot of people standing up saying that we live in an unjust society, that we need to pursue justice, that we need to pursue social justice. I mean, NBA games have stopped, playoff games have stopped, baseball shut down for a period of time over an issue of social justice and racial justice and prejudice. And we're in a text that deals with the subject of justice. And the Bible is abundantly clear. We walk in wicked paths when we abandon justice. And what does that mean? Well, let's look at some of the verses in chapter 5 and see what we're talking about. Let's make some clear teaching or open up Scripture clearly. Try to make sure that we're on the same page here. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. See if you can find a man, one who does justice. The word there is mishpat. It's the idea that someone does what is right and someone does what is right by someone else. It's not just good enough that a follower of Jesus, that a person of Israel would walk in a way that was righteous. It's not just good enough that they would obey the law spiritually. In other words, that they would be concerned about their own spiritual relationship with Jesus. But that the way that they behaved with regard to their neighbor, with regard to their family, with regard to their friends, with regard to the people of God meeting in synagogues, meeting in the temple, and then by extension us meeting in the church, we would act rightly toward all those around us. That's what justice entails. Look at uh, verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah said, then I said, these are only the poor. They don't have any sense. They don't know the way of the Lord. They don't know the justice of their God. Justice is God's idea and God's statement. It's how God intervenes and interacts in the world. Notice verse 5, but I will go to the great. I'll go to those who are wealthy. I'll speak to them for they know the way of the Lord. They're supposed to know the justice of God. But they all alike had broken the yoke and had burst the bonds. Well, what do they mean? What, what is Jeremiah talking about when they've rejected the justice of God? Let's unpack that. Turn, look, if you will, to verse, uh, I believe it's verse 26 of chapter 5. It is. For wicked men are found among my people. Listen to this. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They do not judge with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord. Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Jeremiah gives a definition to injustice. He gives a definition to what it means to abandon justice in this passage of Scripture. He, he first talks about those who enslave other men. 
That's exactly what it's talking about. Those who would look for people who were weak and they would take them in and they would enslave them and they would use them for their own purposes. The implication is that what would happen is they would grow fat and sleek because they were growing wealthy on the labor of someone else. I mean, this is a clear indication that slavery is not a part of God's picture of justice. Very clear. Verse 28, they don't know any bounds in the deeds of evil. They are predominantly wicked. They'll do, use anyone for any means for any pursuit of pleasure that they could possibly imagine. And, and notice the very specific nature of what Jeremiah indicts them on next. They do not judge with justice the cause of the fatherless, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. In the Old Testament, there are numerous occasions where God defines justice as caring for the widow, as caring for the orphan or the fatherless, as caring for the poor, and as caring for the immigrant or the one that would be outcast coming into a society. And over and over again in the books of Jeremiah, in the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, and here in Jeremiah, God makes it abundantly clear that one of the greatest follies and problems with the people of Israel is they decided they would use their power to give them more power rather than use their wealth and their power to pay attention to and lift up and unburden those who were struggling and going through difficult times. In other words, they were failing to care for those who needed the most care. They were abandoning their responsibility to act with justice. Now, what does that mean practically for us? Let me give you some definitions to try to help us make sense of what it means then our responsibility is as followers of Jesus in this world that does not act and, and, and choose to act with justice. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. This is what it means to do justice. I think he's on to something there. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? They said doing justice implies fairness, decency, and honesty. In other words, we have an obligation as followers of Jesus to look out around us and anybody who we interact with we're to treat fairly. We're to be honest. We're to tell the truth. We're to treat them justly. And that is an obligation for every single one of us as followers of Jesus. But the biblical claim for justice actually goes a little bit beyond that and doesn't just say to you and to me, I'm supposed to act with justice toward those. It actually says that we're to go beyond that and defend the unmet justice that happens to the fatherless or happens to the widow or happens to those who are immigrants or happens to those who are unfairly treated in our world. In other words, we should be actively pursuing the benefit of those who are disenfranchised, actively pursue taking care of those who are not taken care of by the normal means of society. And if we're not doing that, we're not actually engaging in justice. And what was taking place in the day and age in which Jeremiah was writing is the people that had were abusing the people that did not have. Let me tell you something, folks. These things are going on in our world right now. They're going on in our community. They're going on in our nation. And what do we do about it? Because if we're not careful what's going to happen, you're going to hear me speak about justice 
and you're going to write me off as someone who is going way too far with justice or, or their claims of justice. Or if you're not careful, what you're going to do, you're going to hear me preach and you're going to think, oh my goodness, he, he's gone off the deep end. He's moved into being a social justice reformer. Or you're going to hear me preach and you're going to hear me think, well, man, he doesn't want to defend the law and the order. And the, man, there's protests going on and there's violence and there are people beating up other people and there's murders that are taking place. All of this is going on. Where do we stand on this? How do we as followers of Jesus interact with these issues and do so righteously? Let me let Francis Schaeffer speak to the issue. He wrote this about 50 years ago. But notice this. First, we as Christians must realize there is a difference between being a co-belligerent and an ally. An ally is someone who says that we are going to join arms in mission, in plan, in desire. We're going to be on the same page. A co-belligerent is someone who says, I'm going to join with you on this issue, but we're not going to agree on all these other issues. I'm not going to be an ally with you on everything else, but I'm going to say the same thing you're saying on this issue because we're right on this issue. Notice what Schaefer goes on to say. At times, it will seem to be saying exactly the same thing as those without a Christian base are saying. If there's social injustice, we should say there is social injustice. If we need order, we should say we need order. In these cases and at these specific points, we would be co-belligerents. But we must not align ourselves as though we are in any camp built on a non-Christian base. We are an ally of no such camp. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is different, totally different. It rests on the absolutes given to us in Scripture. The danger is that the older evangelical with his middle-class orientation will forget this distinction and become an ally of the establishment elite. And at the same time, his son or daughter will forget the distinction and become an ally of some leftish, leftish elite. We must say what the Bible says when it causes us to seem to be saying what others are saying, such as justice or stop the meaningless bombings, because he was writing at a time... 40 or 50 years ago when those on the other side of a political spectrum were bombing places unnecessarily. And he said this, but we must never forget that it is only a passing co-belligerency and not an alliance. Here's what this means. Sometimes we as Christians are going to have to stand up with uh, brothers and sisters of a different race and of a different color and stand alongside them and say, what you're experiencing is unjust and is wrong, and I stand with you, and I defend you, and I will listen to you, and I will work with you, and I will help you to get treated rightly. And there are other times that we as Christians must stand up with those who are being attacked and brutalized and who are, work being, uh, who are standing with law and order and say that we are with you and we are on your side. We need to be co-belligerents in these situations. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes that's going to make you unpopular with your friends on the right, and sometimes it's going to make you unpopular with your friends on the left. But let me tell you something. The church of Jesus Christ and the Bible that God has given us goes beyond right and left. It goes to the very heart of an issue that is primary in the way that God interacts in the world. God looks at racial prejudice and says it is wrong and sinful, and we as a majority race ought to support and defend the rights and inter interject and defend those who are treated wrongly and treated unjustly. And if we don't, how dare us stand before God and say that we're acting with justice because we're not. 
We as Christians ought to do that, but we as Christians also have to recognize that law and order stands. And if you reject law and order, you reject truth. And if we don't stand with those who are, who are on the side of law and order, then we're not standing with justice either. Here's what it means. Our grounding goes far deeper than a political position. And so much of what ta is taking place in our culture today is one political position holding this flag and another political position holding this flag. And you better not be seen holding that flag if you want to have a conversation with somebody on the other side. I'll tell you where the church of Jesus Christ should stand, right in the middle, holding a different flag. that says God is just and we ought to live like it and act like it. I know that's not going to get me too many amens, but that's where we stand. That's where we ought to be. It's where the Bible lands, and so we've got to land there. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. When we walk in ancient paths, we can expect peace and rest. Here's the tension. We look out around us, and there's no peace, and there's no rest. We look out around us, and there's destruction, and there's distortion, and there's difficulty, and there's damage, and there are people crying out, and there's murder, and there's violence. Why? Because people are walking in wicked paths. The reason our country is in chaos, the reason the church doesn't know what to say is all too often because we're walking in wicked paths. How do we find peace and rest? We find peace and rest when we walk in ancient paths. Notice what the text says in verse 16 of chapter 6. The Lord says, stand by the roads. Look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. You want peace and rest? Walk in the ancient paths. Now, this is not Jeremiah adding some kind of uh, insight into traditionalism. He's not looking back and saying to the people of Israel, hey, go back to the good old days. That's not what he's saying at all. There is a giant distinction between an ancient path in the Old Testament and a new path in the Old Testament. Here's what that meant. It, it, they did not have road signs back in Jerusalem. You didn't have a sign up that said this many miles to get to the next city down the road. Here's how many miles it is to Bethlehem. Here's the sign. Here's the direction you go. They didn't have MapQuest. They didn't have Google Maps. They didn't have the Map It app. They didn't have any of those things back in Jeremiah's day. All they had to discern which direction that they was the right direction to go to the next town or the next city was a path. And what Jeremiah is saying is this, don't go down the paths that aren't well trodden. See, the paths that are well trodden are the paths that we know are safe. The paths that we know are secure, the paths that we know have been traveled by thousands and thousands and thousands of people before, and so there's security there. If you go make your own path, if you go down a path that's not well trodden, you're going to be going to your own destruction. And what had happened in Jeremiah's day is the people of God had the paths of truth and they had the paths of justice right in front of them. And what had they chosen to do? They had chosen to reject truth and make their own way. They had chosen to reject and abandon justice and made their own way. And here's what that meant. It meant that they were going to end up in destruction. What Jeremiah offers is this. Walk in the ancient paths to expect peace and rest. How do we do that? Folks, how do we do that? We hold on to truth and we live out justice. And not just in some spiritual sense where I'm going to open up my Bible and I'm going to read it today, but in a real practical sense where we say I'm going to live according to the Bible today. 
If that means I defend the cause of someone who's a different color of skin than me today, that's exactly what I'm going to do. If it means I support the poor, that's exactly what I'm going to do. If it means I look out and see someone who is enslaved in sex trafficking, or I can do something about sex trafficking in the world, that's what I do. I engage in activities, and we should engage in activities that defend those who are defenseless, because that's who we're to be, and that's what walking in the ancient paths looks like. It looks like the way Samuel walked, and the way David walked, and the way Abraham walked, and no and on down the list of those characters and those believers in the Old Testament who walked according to God's justice and were honored for it. And why must we do that? Because if we don't, not only will our culture continue going down a path that will end in destruction, but we might find ourselves on that same path as well. Because notice what the text says at the end of verse 16. But they said, we will not walk in it. That's why verse 16 is not our memory verse for the month of September. Because it didn't stop with an invitation. It ended with a statement of affirmation that the people of God were hearing this invitation and stubbornly refusing, I'm not going to change my ways. I'm not going to do what God invites. I'm going to reject God's right to rule over me in truth and justice. Here's what that meant. It meant the judgment was going to come. Terrible judgment. Judgment from the north. The text tells us the Babylonians were going to come and destroy. And here's the invitation. Notice this in verse 26 of chapter 6. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. The promise there, or the warning there rather, is that if we continue walking in the, in the paths of our own choosing and rejecting God's right to rule over us, then the judgment and destruction that comes is going to be terrible. So terrible that it is like mourning for an only child. Let me tell you something, folks. There are hardly, there's hardly anything that I could think of that would be worse than me having to bury my own son. Couldn't imagine it. And that's exactly what God says to his people. What you're doing and where you're going, you're going to mourn as if you're going to bury an only son. Where does that lead us? It leads us to an offer of repentance. Folks, let me tell you why our world's broken. Our world's broken because they've abandoned truth. Tell you why our world's broken because they don't want true justice. Nobody wants true justice. True justice, we don't even want true justice. True justice means that we're going to spend an eternity separated from God. We don't want that. We want mercy. We want grace. We want forgiveness. We want kindness. You know what? We have to live that out as followers of Jesus if the world's going to hear about it, see it, and respond to it. We need to respond in repentance. One person who did that was John Newton. You may not recognize the name John Newton, but you'll definitely know the product of his pen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John Newton was a part of the British slave trade industry. He served on a ship. He ran a ship. He did some things to other human beings that would make any of us in this room blush. He wrote about the things he did. He wrote about the things that he saw. And he became utterly convicted of his depravity and the depth of his sinfulness. He cried out to God one day and God forgave him. God changed his life, turned him into a preacher, turned him into a songwriter, and he penned the words, Amazing Grace. And on his tombstone, he said, it says this, John Newton, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior 
Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Folks, what we need is to receive the mercy of God. If you're under the sound of my voice and you've not entered into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, let me assure you, you don't want to see God's judgment. You don't want to experience his just justice. You need to know that Jesus took God's judgment and Jesus took God's justice for you on the cross so that God could give you mercy. We deserve the very judgment that Jeremiah outlined in chapters 5 and 6, but we don't have to receive that if we've received Jesus, and that gives us as followers of Jesus a reason to praise and glorify God. And it gives you, someone who may be far from God, an invitation to receive the mercy of God. If you want to find out how, please feel free to reach out using the platform that you're watching us on or Send us an email, info at wilkesboroughbaptist.org, or give us a phone call. Uh, 667-1271-336 is the area code. We'll tell you how you can put your faith and trust in Jesus. Stand with me, if you will. Respond to Jesus' invitation to receive mercy. Dear God, we come to you in this moment. We come to you in this moment recognizing that we are too often people who do not value the truth, and we are too often people who do not live according to justice. Forgive us. Lord, where that makes us uncomfortable, I pray that you would shake us into action and help us as followers of Jesus to interact with those around us in a way that declares that you are right and righteous, you are just and you are holy, and you want to take those who are broken and disenfranchised and bring them into the joy and the riches of an everlasting relationship with the living God. Help us as your followers to embrace that vision, the biblical vision of what it means to truly live by truth and justice. Lord God, thank you for the mercy we've received. Thank you that we can declare you and praise you and glorify you because we haven't received justice. We've received mercy at the cross of your son, Jesus. And Lord God, help us to live out our faith, to glorify and honor you, to praise you. For that one that's under the sound of my voice or those many that need to receive the mercy and grace of God, I pray that this day they would they would turn to you, that they would find the forgiveness that you are offering, that they would receive their forgiveness that John Newton received, that they would receive the forgiveness I've received and others have received. They would turn to you in salvation. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.